0: Hey everybody, welcome to the Chai Experiment, the show where we attempt to understand scripture as it might have been by those who originally received it, and then later commented on it. This week we're back in the book of Leviticus in chapters 9 and 10. We've been going through this book for nearly three months already, and we took several weeks off to look at the festivals as they passed, and since we've been so long out of the book of Leviticus... With only the last two weeks kind of leading us back into the book, let's go back for a moment and examine the purpose of this book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus is a Greek word that means pertaining to the Levites. This book was given this name after the time of Yeshua by people who were not Hebrew or Jewish. There's very little in their culture that they could connect to this book. And because many of the things that are said in this book have to do with how the priests and Levites were to conduct the rituals associated with the tabernacle and worship, it became the popular opinion that this book had little to say to the layman. Well, that's just not true. Yes, there are many things in this book that the layman may not need to worry himself about, especially when it comes to the specifics of conducting these rituals. And there's very little contained in this book for the modern man, especially when we approach the book from the viewpoint of the specifics of the rituals, because very little of this book is able to be accomplished without a tabernacle, the context of the land, or a host of other necessary items. And so while examining this book through a strict literal lens can teach us a lot of how ancient worshippers of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob conducted their worship, this lens does very little to enrich our own experience with Hashem. But... But if we can dig beneath the specifics and get to the heart, the attitudes, themes, and symbols that are represented in this book, then we can find a great deal that we can still apply to our own worship practices. Because this book is not matters pertaining to the Levites. Rather, it's Vayikra, a Hebrew word that means, and he called. And that's what this book is. It's a handbook of worship for all who are called by God to worship him. And as such, it still contains much of value that we can glean from these pages. And so as we open the book of Leviticus for the first time, we encounter something that is different for modern audiences to process, but which would have spoken volumes to the ancient audience that this book was written to. We have to remember that the Bible was written for us. It was not written to us. It's going to use language and examples that would best be understood by an ancient audience, And that puts us behind as we open these books. We have to put ourselves into their minds in some way before we can even begin to accurately make heads or tails of what's being said. So when we open Leviticus, and for the first seven chapters all we read of is the sacrificial system, it's easy to get frustrated and bored and even disgusted. All of the talk of blood and slaughter, it causes the modern mind to shut down in some ways. As students of the Bible we cannot succumb to this natural response. We must face it full on and discern what's truly being said. And so as we read of the sacrifices, we discovered that there were attitudes of worship that were being expressed in each of the various sacrifices lifted here. The first sacrifice was the ola, or the burnt, or the ascending sacrifice, the one where the entire animal was burnt on the altar with the exception of the skin. As we examine this sacrifice, we discover that there's an attitude of awe that's associated with this sacrifice, the fear of Hashem that we read of all throughout Scripture as the beginning of wisdom and the foundation for faith, a healthy respect of the one who, as the judge, can legitimately end your existence at any moment and be completely justified in doing so, something that we will read of occurring in the text today. The second is the mincha, or the grain offering. This was a bloodless offering that was made by fire on the altar. And as we examined it, we discovered that there was contained in this sacrifice the idea of gift giving to a special loved one. But alongside this, as a corollary, is the idea of giving tribute to a king. When we get to the book of Deuteronomy, we will see this idea expressed throughout the book. We, as the people of God, we are vassal kings under a suzerain authority of the great or high king. And as vassals, we owe tribute to the great king. The third type of sacrifice was the shlamim, the peace or the fellowship offering. Now this type of sacrifice contained within it many ideas, but the most foundational idea is that of friends sharing a meal together. And this can occur for several reasons. The first is voluntarily, simply a desire to share time and food. The second is with an attitude for thankfulness, A banquet held with closest friends and family and gratitude expressed by the worshipper for all who are present to hear. The third is the vow offering. The closest friends and associates acting as a witness to a promise that has been made. And just last week we saw another type of shilmim offering in the ordination ceremonies. It's a vow of sorts, a thanksgiving of sorts a unique sacrifice that is similar to an employer having a series of meals with his new associates or or employees as they're being trained in their new position. Then there's the fourth type of sacrifice, that being the chata'at or the sin sacrifice. This is a sacrifice that recognizes the vast gulf between our nature and Hashem's nature. Our nature is an affront to Him in many ways, and so this filth must be cleansed away. And the sin sacrifice it does just this. It purges the filthiness that we leave in our wake. This is the sacrifice that is given in abject humility before God. And connected to this is the guilt sacrifice. While the sin sacrifice speaks of our nature, the guilt sacrifice is for when we commit actions that are improper and that make us guilty of transgressing something that is God's. All of these sacrifices combined together, they reveal many of the ways that we can relate to God and some ways in which we can relate to each other. And knowing these attitudes, they'll help us today as we read Leviticus 9 and 10. We're going to read of several sacrifices that were made today in several different contexts, and knowing what attitudes are being expressed will help us immensely to discern what's occurring in these upcoming narratives. Because these are the only narrative portions in the book of Leviticus. So let's turn to Leviticus chapters 9 and 10, and let's read this week's Parsha. And on the eighth day it came to be that Moshe called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourselves a young bull as a sin offering, and a ram as an ascending offering, a perfect one, and bring them before Hashem. And speak to the children of Israel, saying, Take a male goat as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb, both a year old, perfect ones, as an ascending offering, and a bull and a ram as peace offerings, to sacrifice before Hashem, and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today Hashem shall appear to you. And they took what Moshe commanded before the tent of appointment, and all the congregation drew near and stood before Hashem. And Moshe said, This is the word which Hashem commanded you to do, so that the honor of Hashem appears to you. And Moshe said to Aaron, Go to the altar and prepare your sin offering and your ascending offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people and make the offering of the people and make atonement for them as Hashem has commanded. So Aaron came near to the altar and slew the calf of the sin offering, which was for himself. And the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him and he dipped his finger in the blood and put it on the horns of the altar and poured the blood at the base of the altar. And the fat and the kidneys and the appendage on the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar as Hashem had commanded Moshe and the flesh and the skin he burned with fire outside the camp. And he slew the ascending offering, and the sons of Aaron presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled on the altar all around. And they presented the ascending offering to him with its pieces and head, and he burned them on the altar. And he washed the entrails and the legs, and burned them with the ascending offering on the altar. And he brought the people's offering, and he took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people, and slew it, and made it a sin offering, like the first one. And he brought the ascending offering, and made it according to the right ruling. And he also brought the grain offering, and filled his hand with it, and burned it on the altar, besides the ascending offering of the morning. And he slew the bull and the ram as a sacrifice of peace offerings, which were for the people. And the Aaron's sons presented to him the blood, which he sprinkled on the altar all around, and the fat from the bull, and the ram, and the fat tail, and the covering on the kidneys, and the appendage on the liver. And they placed the fat on the breasts, and they burned the fat on the altar, But the breasts and the right thigh Aaron waved as a wave offering before Hashem, as Moshe commanded. Aaron then lifted up his hand toward the people and blessed them, and came down from making the sin offering, and the ascending offering, and the peace offerings. And Moshe and Aaron went into the tent of appointment, and came out, and blessed the people. And the honor of Hashem appeared to all the people. And fire came out from before Hashem, and consumed the ascending offering, and the fat on the altar, and all the people saw, and cried aloud, and fell on their faces. And Nadav and Avihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his fire-holder and put fire in it, and put incense on it, and brought the strange fire before Hashem, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from Hashem and consumed them, and they died before Hashem. Then Moshe said to Aaron, This is what Hashem spoke, saying, By those who come near me let me be set apart, and before all the people let me be honored. And Aaron was silent. And Moshe called to Mishael and to Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, take your brothers from before the set-apart place out of the camp. So they came near and took them by their long shirts out of the camp, as Moshe had said. And Moshe said to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Itamar his sons, Do not unbide your heads nor tear your garments, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the people. But let your brothers, all the house of Israel, bewail the burning which Hashem has kindled. And do not go out from the door of the tent of appointment, lest you die, for the anointing oil of Hashem is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moshe. And Hashem spoke to Aaron, saying, Do not drink wine or strong drink, you nor your sons with you, when you go into the tent of appointment, lest you die, a law forever throughout your generations, so as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean and to teach the children of Israel all the laws which Hashem has spoken to them by the hand of Moshe. And Moshe spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and to Itamar his sons who were left. Take the grain offering that is left over from the offerings made by fire to Hashem, and eat it without leaven beside the altar, for it is most holy. And you shall eat it in your set-apart place, because it is yours by law, and your sons by law, of the offerings made by fire to Hashem. For so I have been commanded." And the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the contribution you eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you. For they are yours by law and your sons by law, which are given from the sacrifice of peace offerings of the children of Israel. The thigh of the contribution and the breast of the wave offering they bring with the offerings of fat made by fire, to bring as a wave offering before Hashem. And it shall be yours and your sons with you by a law forever, as Hashem has commanded." And Moshe diligently looked for the goat of the sin offering, and saw that it was burned up. And he was wroth with Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron, who were left, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the set-apart place, since it is most set-apart? And Elohim has given it to you, to bear the crookedness of the congregation, to make atonement for them before Hashem. See, its blood was not brought inside the set-apart place. You should have eaten it without fail in a set-apart place, as I have commanded. And Aaron said to Moshe, See, today they have brought their sin offering and their sending offering before Hashem, and matters like these have come to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would it have been right in the eyes of Hashem? And when Moshe heard that, it was good in his eyes. As chapter 9 opens, we read something that should catch your attention, if you are paying attention. In chapter 8, we just finished reading of the seven day process of ordination that had occurred in order to raise up Aaron and his sons as priests to Hashem. As chapter 9 opens, we read of what happened on the eighth day. Now, all throughout the Bible, we read of sevens everywhere, as we discussed last week seven days of creation, seven days of a week, seven days of ordination, seven days of Nidah, seven days of cleansing for the leper, the seventh day Sabbath, The sevens connected to each of the festival cycles, the seven branches of the menorah, the seven churches in Revelation, seven, 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 seven. I could continue on for quite some time. These cycles of seven, they repeat over and over and over again. And so when a cycle of seven ends, where do we expect the next cycle to begin? Our expectation is at one to start over on the next set of seven. But there are times throughout the Bible when the number 8 is chosen to represent the day that comes after the 7 cycle. Now when we see this, we should have some alarms going off in our head. What's being recounted is not just another cycle of 7. Instead, it is something new that is occurring. The pattern being that during one cycle of 7, a change occurs. A shift of some sort that took a cycle of 7 to accomplish. And so when the new cycle begins, it does so not with one, because this new cycle is not just a repeat of the previous. Change has occurred, and so the number eight is used to reveal this new beginning. New creation. A new way of being. And as we see this represented throughout Scripture in many ways, the eighth day, when counted this way, is always a day of new beginnings. The eighth day circumcision the 8th day of ordination, the 8th day of Sukkot or the Festival of Tabernacles, the 8th day of the dedication for the tabernacle and the temples, the 8th day of purification for the leper. Even the 50th day when counting to Shavuot or the 50th year in the count of the Jubilee cycles, they reveal this in a slightly different way. A breaking of the previous cycles and the beginning of a new set of cycles. And so here in Leviticus, this is what we are reading when we begin chapter 9. A new reality is being realized for the entire community. This is not just something that's new for the priests, but for the entire congregation, the entire nation of Israel. Sure, the priests are now filling their new role as new creation, who have been granted the holiness that's necessary to approach a holy God. But now the people themselves, they have a way to approach and to be in communion with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And this is what's contained here in this chapter. It is the opening ceremony for the tabernacle. After this day, the tabernacle was ready to receive worshippers, and a priesthood was in place to carry out the functions of the tabernacle. And so this opening ceremony contains several sacrifices as part of this inauguration, the ceremony begins with the command for two sacrifices, a chata'at sacrifice and an ola sacrifice for the high priest. Now as the one officiating what was to occur for the rest of the day, the high priest had to take care of himself first so that he could then operate in the capacity that had been entrusted to him. Following these two sacrifices that were for Aaron alone come instructions for then for four offerings to be given. A sin offering for the people. Now, this offering is different than the bull that is prescribed in chapter 4. This inaugural sin offering is not about the community having committed a sin, but rather about cleansing the holy items from the sin-bearing creatures that were being gathered around. A calf and a lamb as an ascending offering. This is a communal recognition of the fear of Hashem. He owns everything, and so we give back things of value in recognition of this fact. A bull and a ram as peace offerings. This is a way of the community drawing near in fellowship to the God of creation, and a grain offering as a tribute to God. All four of the primary types of sacrifice were accomplished on this one day as part of this inaugural event. And as we read throughout the chapter, we see that Aaron carried out the commands to the letter. He offered all of the necessary sacrifices to God. We aren't going to get into the specifics of what was accomplished here because I have covered the meaning behind the ritual aspects in previous weeks and touched on them in the intro. At the end of this all, Aaron lifted up his hands and he blesses the people. From the top of the ramp that leads up to the altar, Aaron spoke a blessing over the people. It's not specifically stated, but I believe this to be the first time that the Aaronic blessing of Numbers chapter 6 was spoken over the people of Israel. And only after all of this do Moses and Aaron enter into the tabernacle for the first time. Now, if we remember back in the book of Exodus, when the tabernacle was finished, the glory of Hashem came down and dwelt in the tabernacle, and no one could enter. Exodus chapter 40, 34 through 35, and the cloud covered the tent of appointment, and the glory of Hashem filled the dwelling place, and Moses was not able to come into the tent of appointment because the cloud dwelt on it, and the honor of Hashem filled the dwelling place. And the very first verse of Leviticus tells us the same story. Leviticus 1 1. And Hashem called to Moshe and spoke to him from the tent of appointment, saying, Hashem called to Moses from the tent. Moses could not enter the tent because of the glory that filled the tent. This moment is very special. For the first time since the Garden of Eden, right here in Leviticus 9, man entered into the presence of God and dwelt with him once again in his special place. On this eighth day, the first goalpost of God and man dwelling together in community was accomplished. A new beginning was taking place. Finally, after a millennia of exile, a select group of people were being allowed to return, the end goal being a return of all mankind into the presence of God. And we looked at the correlations between the tabernacle and the Garden of Eden back in Exodus 29. Well, that's what we're witnessing here. And the glory of God appeared to the people, and fire came out from before Hashem and consumed the Olah sacrifices that were on the altar. And how did the people respond? With the attitude that the Olah contains in it. The people cried aloud and fell on their faces in worship. The fear of Hashem overcame them, and they humbled themselves before the pure and holy because they recognized they were not. And the tabernacle was ready for business. Now, there's a challenge that arrives for man when we arrive at a new beginning. There are two paths that can be taken, and chapter 10 explores both in some way. Because at least five men were ordained as priests in the previous week. Aaron as the high priest, Nadav, Avihu, Itamar, and Eleazar as priests. And as chapter 10 opens, two of those men chose the wrong path when it comes to a new beginning. They chose to operate under their own power, to elevate themselves in the way that they wanted to worship, and acting under their own authority. They approached God in an unapproved manner. Verse 1 only says that they brought strange fire before Hashem. Now, what this means is anyone's guess. Did they start their own fire to light the proper incense? I mean, the command is to use coals from the altar to light the incense that was brought into the tabernacle. And as we just read, the coals from the fire in front of the altar were lit, at this point, by fire from God. Did they bring the wrong incense, perhaps? Exodus 31 states that any other incense that is to be brought into the tabernacle will result in death. Is it because they both brought incense at the same time and only one was to bring incense at any given time? I mean, there are so many different takes on this passage that I hesitate to settle on just one. And I believe that Scripture is purposefully not specific, once again, in describing what these men did so that we don't fixate on this one thing and then make it the thing which must not be done and miss the point entirely. Verse 1 is clear in one way. What they did was something which they had not been commanded to do. What they did also detracted from the sanctity, the holiness, and the honor of God. For this is what Hashem says By those who come near me, let me be sanctified, and before all of the people, let me be honored. What precipitated this tragedy, we are not told in clear language. But we can infer from what we are told that Nadav and Avihu made a mistake that is all too common to make. The mistake of being one in which a person is elevated to a position of authority. A person is granted a measure of favor before someone of power. And it's all too easy when granted a position of power or authority to take that power and to become a power unto yourself. To draw attention to yourself or to assume that the position bestowed gives you the right and the authority to do whatever you want. Acting in this way perverts what you know to be right and makes yourself the right. If we turn to other places in Scripture, we see the same thing occurring over and over. Samson. Samson was granted great power from God, and what did he use that power to do? He used that power to make himself great and to feed his baser desires. And because of this, he lost his eyes, and he lived as his slave, a trophy for his enemies. Or how about Saul? Saul was granted power as king, and he used that power and authority to take on the role of priest that had not been bestowed to him. He used that power to choose to bring honor to himself in the matter with Amalek, rather than acting in obedience to what had been commanded. Or Jeroboam. Jeroboam gave the kingship over the northern kingdom of Israel after the split of the kingdoms. He used his power and his authority to set up temples in places where they should not have been. He used his power to create golden calf idols for the people to worship while calling them by the name of God. He used his power to institute his own eight-day festival at an arbitrary time of year in order to break what he saw as the power of Judah over his people. Or perhaps let's look at Haman given power as the second in command in persia used that power to destroy his own enemies without even realizing that his enemy was represented in the queen he used his power to build a stake to kill his immediate enemy and he ended up dying on that very stake each of these men were granted power and authority each of these men and more They grasped that power to become an authority unto themselves apart from the one who had given them the authority. Each one defined for themselves what is good and evil, and they ate from that proverbial tree of knowledge. Each of them paid the ultimate price in the end for their arrogance and pride. And this is the challenge of the new beginning. It is easy to pridefully elevate yourself when you are granted a boon a gift, a fresh start, or a new beginning, to forget where you came from and who put you where you are and to choose for yourself who you're going to be, rather than allowing the word of God to guide your decisions. This is something that we see reflected throughout religion in our world, especially in Christianity, where the gospel fully encompasses the idea of new beginning. Too often the gospel is sold as a get-out-of-jail-free card that gives power and authority and requires nothing from the person. Fresh start now. Do what you want to do. No guidance, no expectations. Just follow your heart. Go ahead and do what God did not command. You'll be okay. He's forgiving and he loves everyone, so just be yourself. That is not the gospel of the Bible. The gospel is new creation. It is a fresh start and new beginning. It is rebirth into the citizenship of the kingdom of God. And there are expectations that come with this sort of citizenship. Expectations of obedience and holiness in action that we'll learn more of in several weeks. For now, let's focus on the mistake of Nedav and They elevated themselves in their pride, and they began to make up ways to serve God. We aren't told how much time passed between the elevation and their deaths, but one imagines that it was relatively quickly, and we get clues that point this out later in the chapter. And so it is that the corpses of these men have to be removed from the presence of God, and it is here that a challenge comes upon Aaron and his remaining sons. Because of their position and the holiness of God, they are not allowed to mourn the loss of their close family members. They've been elevated to a place of holiness and they've been granted access to the presence of Hashem. But Hashem is a God of life. Death is something that is not allowed in His presence. Even close proximity to a dead body disqualifies a person from coming before God without a seven-day cleansing period and the tabernacle had just opened. If Aaron and his sons had defiled themselves for their brother, the tabernacle would have become useless before it had a chance to get going. For the sake of unity and the sake of dwelling with God, Aaron and his sons were forced to swallow their sorrow and to then continue on in the role that they had been granted. They had been granted holiness through the anointing oil. And because of this holiness and connection to the God of life, they could not come near to death or they would die. And into this the command is given. Hashem speaks directly to Aaron, which is a very rare circumstance. God draws close to Aaron in his sorrow without the mediator of Moses. And Hashem reminds Aaron of his duties. And he gives him a warning. Don't drink alcohol before engaging in your duties here in the tabernacle. Now some think that this is a pointer that Nadav and Avihu may have been drunk when they made their mistake. Others think that this is just a helpful reminder, and since there's really no other place to put this reminder, then we'll stick it here. There's one other option that I stumbled upon as I considered this. Perhaps Aaron was contemplating drowning his sorrows with alcohol. And into this, Hashem gives a measure of an allowance. Go ahead, drink alcohol, but not when you're on duty or plan on being on duty. Mourn your children, dull your pain a bit, but not when it matters. For what is the role that's been set before Aaron and his sons, Leviticus chapter 10, 10 10-11? So as to make a distinction between the holy and the profane, and between the unclean and the clean and to teach the children of Israel all the laws which Hashem has spoken to them by the hand of Moses. It was the role of the priests to teach the people these distinctions. Nadav and Avihu, they could not make this distinction in their own lives, and they paid the price for it. But Aaron still had this charge. Teach the difference between clean and unclean. Teach the difference between holy and profane. In the proper teaching of this concept, no one need ever transgress the holiness inherent in Hashem's nature. And this chapter then ends with a confusing conflict of sorts. Reminders are given for what portion of what sacrifices are the priests, and where and how they're to eat them. These things have some bearing on holiness and cleanliness in some way, which we're not going to get into today. But contained in these reminders is a prodding to move forward to continue on in the way that they had been going and to not allow the sin and destruction of their brothers to derail the important work that's happening in their midst. That work being the goal of the gospel and the challenge since the initial fall. Man and God dwelling together. They're so close to a new experience of God, but because of the sin of a few, the entire exercise is now on a knife's edge. And so Moses goes behind the priests to ensure that everything is going according to plan. And there's a problem. Now we just read in verse 14 and 15 that a portion of the sin sacrifice was to be eaten by Aaron and his sons. But when Moses went to look for it, it was missing. All of the sacrifice was burned as an olah offering. Once again, someone is acting contrary to what had been commanded. If we take our cues from earlier, someone is about to die. And Moses is angry. He had lost enough family members that day due to disobedience. And so as Moses quotes sound bites of legal code to Aaron and his sons and demands an answer, Why did you not eat the sacrifice like you were told? This is the law that was given, and this is the law that I gave you. And Aaron's response is cryptic. He says, We brought everything as it was supposed to be brought. We obeyed God to the letter of his Torah, and yet this tragedy still occurred. We obeyed, and yet we're in pain. And now my heart is in mourning. I'm not being allowed to mourn in the traditional way for my sons. You see, the priests were given a portion of the sin offering to demonstrate their role of representing Hashem to the people. But Aaron doesn't feel like a representative to the people. His heart is not there. If he had eaten of the sacrifice as the command stated, he recognizes that this would have perverted the command. His heart was in a state of fear of Hashem, perhaps even a little bit of anger at God, anger at his sons for their stupid mistake, anger at himself for not training them better. His heart has been torn out of his chest, and because of his holy position, he is not allowed to mourn, and yet he is in mourning. And so Aaron takes a stand. He chooses to operate in the spirit of the law that was given, rather than the letter of the law. He takes what should have been his by right, and he gives it to God too. He recognizes the attitude behind the Ola, and so he offers the sacrifice according to his state of mind. He allows the sacrifice to become part of his mourning for his sons. And in this we see the heart of God. This is okay. The law was not transgressed. His holiness was not transgressed. Rather than doing what Nadav and Avi who did and elevating themselves because of their position, this action with the sacrifice is an act of humility. It's Aaron saying, It all belongs to you, God, even my sons. You are a fearful God who can take any of us at any moment and be completely justified in doing so. And so what is mine? What you have given me by right and by law. Well, that's yours too. Take it. My heart is not in it to put on a show. And if I fulfilled the law of Chata'at, that's all it would be. A show. And this is the reason why it's so important to understand the attitudes behind the sacrifices. Because many times in scripture, things are being communicated through the sacrifices that are offered that can't really be expressed concisely in words. Entire worlds of meaning and commentary are present in the sacrifices, and when we skip over Leviticus, we miss this key that can be applied elsewhere in Scripture. Another thing that this entire scenario reveals is that God's heart is not that we should keep the Torah according to every jot and tittle just because we should. It's not a checklist to be marked off as we keep some things and avoid others. The Torah is about learning what underlies the things that we read and then acting accordingly as we face life. And that applies to all of Torah obedience. There are times in life when literal and most restrictive letter of the law cannot be kept because of the circumstances in life. For example, Corrie Tenboom, who lived in the Netherlands during World War II. When the Nazis invaded the Netherlands and began to round up the Jews, Corey Ten Boom hid some away in her house. In her book, The Hiding Place, she recounts how when Nazi soldiers visited her house and asked if she had seen any Jews, she would lie to them and say no. Now, a situation such as this creates a conflict in Torah adherence. Do you tell the truth and obey the God-appointed authorities? This is what living by the letter of the Torah would have required from Miss Ten Boom. This would have led to the early capture and the death of Jews whose lives depended on her? Or do you lie? Do you disrespect the authorities? Do you break the law of God in letter? But in doing so, you uphold the spirit of the Torah. This was the challenge that she faced. And this is a challenge that we will each face from time to time. How do we decide the right thing to do in these situations? the answer lies in being able to discern the spirit of the torah the heart that underlies the commands that are written and that's what aaron is doing here he has discerned the meaning of the sacrifices and he recognizes that there is a deeper principle at play here rather than just simple rote obedience and it's this that yeshua taught the letter of the law means nothing if the spirit of the law is being transgressed in the process of your rote obedience. Matthew five twenty three 23-24 says, If then you bring your gift to the altar, and there you remember that your brother holds whatever against you, leave your gift before the altar and go, first make peace with your brother, then come and offer your gift. The command says bring the sacrifice, but Yeshua says that if you have not done everything in your power to live according to the spirit of unity with your brother that undergirds the Torah, then your sacrifice is meaningless. How about in Mark 7, 9-13? through And he said to them, Well, do you set aside the commands of God in order to guard your tradition? For Moses said, Respect your father and mother, and he who curses father or mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father or mother, whatever profit you might have from me, that is korban, uh, that means a gift. You no longer let him do any matter at all for his father or mother, nullifying the word of God through your tradition, which you have handed down. The question came up in Judaism about what to do if you only have so much money. You have some to give, but where do you give it? Do you give the money to God as a tithe or an offering? Or do you give the money to help support your elderly parents? Now the tradition landed on the side of giving to God, being the command with precedent. Tithing is the ultimate expression of loyalty to God, after all. But Yeshua says that the command to honor your father and your mother takes precedent. Why? Well, because honoring parents is one of the ten, for sure. But if we understand the spirit of the Torah and the foundation on which it stands, Giving for the sake of giving to people who have plenty simply to check a box misses the mark. And using that checkbox, then, as an excuse for why you can't give to people who are legitimately in need, especially your own parents, it goes against everything the Torah stands for. It spits in the face of caring for the vulnerable classes among us, which can demonstrably be shown to be the heart of the Torah. The command to love your neighbor as yourself, it gets overturned and perverted. All for the sake of exacting obedience to a legal code that was written for us, but not to us. This is the way of the Messiah. To live in the spirit of the Torah, not the letter. Matthew 5 reveals this truth over and over. God wants our obedience, sure. The Torah is of vital importance. But if our exacting obedience to the letter of his law causes us to set ourselves up in pride over others, well, then we've failed already. Matthew 23, 23 through 24 says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! because you tithe the mint and the anise and the cumin, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the Torah, the justice and the compassion and the faith. These need to have been done without neglecting the others. The scribes and the Pharisees, they kept the Torah to an exacting standard, and they lived up to the ideal of teaching Torah to others. But in their zeal to do so, they created standards that were a burden out of a law that gives freedom. If our obedience causes us to harm others or not actively help others, we've missed the point. Luke ten thirty 30-36 In replying, Yeshua said, A certain man was going down to Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who, both stripping and beating him, went away, leaving him half dead. And by coincidence, a certain priest was going down that way, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side, And likewise a Levite also, when he came to the place, seeing, passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, journeying, came upon him, and when he saw him, he had compassion on him. And he went to him, and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And having placed him on his own breast, he brought him to an inn, and looked after him. And going out on the next day, he took out two denarii, and gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Look after him, and whatever more you spend, I shall repay you when I return. Who then of these three do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the robbers? The priest and the Levite in the story, they avoided the injured man because it might mean that they would become ritually defiled. Their position and their exacting standard of keeping not only the Torah, but their position and their schedule kept them from helping. And as they continued on, smugly content in their own holiness and exacting execution of the law, a man lay dying, wounded in the gutter. If there is only one thing I ever teach anyone, let it be this. God does not want your rote obedience without question. Now, he does want to be obeyed. This is of vital importance, as we see in Nadab and Avihu. But God also accepts that we are human, and his hope is for us to be able to live according to the principles That underlie the Torah. For the Torah is a foundation. But a Torah without Yeshua. Is a foundation that will fail. Let me say this another way. Same idea. Different words. The letter of the Torah. Without the spirit of the Torah. Is dead. It is a corpse. One that can only be brought alive. By being given. Back its spirit. And that. That's our challenge. For we will all reach times in our lives when we start afresh, when we have a new beginning and a new purpose. When we arrive at these times, we cannot become prideful and begin to do our own things in our own pride. We must react in humility, as Aaron did. And at times we'll be forced to make difficult decisions, to keep the letter of the law, but in doing so to pervert the spirit of the law. And most of all, when these times arise, we must learn to discern the weightier matters of the law, the things of the Spirit. And most of all, we must recognize the gospel is not an excuse to live our lives in pride without any fear of punishment, but rather it should drive us to our knees in humility and it should prompt us to know more about what God expects from his people. Because if we accept the gift of salvation and use it as an excuse to become prideful in opposition to the law of God, we will be destroyed. But if we allow salvation to kill us and who we were, we can then be rebuilt into what God has in store for us. Because we can go one of two ways. One way leads to life. The other way leads back into death. The way of God is the way of life. So continue to Deresh Chai. Seek life. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Deresh Chai. If this content has blessed you and you would like more, please consider subscribing, liking, commenting, and sharing with others. To find out more about what we do and to support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com We'll see you again next time as we dareish eschai, as we Seek Life. Shalom.